Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. On this week's show, we have Madeline Albright. As I'm sure you all know, she was the first woman to serve as Secretary of State, acting as America's leading diplomat from 1997 to 2001. Before that, she served as America's ambassador to the United Nations. She has a new book out called Fascism, A Warning. As a Czech refugee from both Nazi and communist occupation, Albright can tell the story of fascism from personal experience and from her experience as a Secretary of State dealing with actual fascists. Our conversation was presented by The Atlantic and by Politics and Prose, and was recorded live at the 6th and I Historic Synagogue in downtown Washington, D.C. It's clearly going to be a tough crowd for you here. (laughs) I just want you to prepare yourself for that. I have to tell you before we start, um, when I got here about a half hour ago, I I walked into the green room. She was, Madeline was signing books, and I said, because I have a tendency to joke around, I said, what is this book called anyway? And she said, it's called Fashion, A Warning. Um, <laughs> so it's sort of an ultimate Gilda Radner moment or something like that. But we're, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll skip the fashion and go right to the fascism. Let's start um, with definitions, if we may. Um, define for us the, the characteristics of fascism. Give us a thumbnail sketch of what you mean when you use the word fascism. Well, first of all, let me just say how happy I am to be here and that I actually paid homage to you by writing about the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, then... We're, we're a fisheries uh, magazine, uh, actually. People don't know uh, that. And Hugo Chavez talked about the fact that he enjoyed politics and prose. So I have, uh, that's my way of thanking all of you. So thank you. I do think that one of the issues actually are what the definitions are. And fascism is not easy to define. Uh, it is basically a, uh, a plot or a plan where, in fact, there is an identification with a tribe or a hyper-nationalism. Uh, it is uh, where, in fact, you decide that it is... Um, you identify with that group, but you already discriminate against those that are not part of the group and don't care about their civil rights or liberties of any kind. It is a way to um, de- uh, really deprecate and not pay any attention to any kind of uh, democratic institutions. It is how to use propaganda and information to put your message out and having rallies where, in fact, uh, you say terrible things about your opponent and you then also even encourage violence. You do also try to get all control of power, authority, and a certain amount of security or military around you, and you never listen to anybody who disagrees with you. So that, but it is not an easy thing to define, frankly. We will get to the person a lot of us think you're talking about (laughs) in a... And by that, I mean Vladimir Putin, obviously. Um, we'll get to that in a minute, and we want to work through these definitions with you. But I, I thought it would be interesting to start at the beginning, um, which is to say your own life and your own story. Um, 
didn't have an average childhood, you bumped up right against fascism in its purest form. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about um, your experiences as a child, your experiences through the prism of your parents, um, and what makes you think, based on what you saw then, that what we're seeing now around the world um, suggests that it's, it's having a resurgence. Well, first of all, um, I you know, was a very smart child, but at two, I didn't understand much. Um, what happened, I was Not born even written your in, first book in yet, uh, right. 1937, and the Munich Agreement happened in 1938, and the Nazis marched into Prague in March 1939. My father was a Czechoslovak diplomat, um, and uh, the government in exile was moving, and they went to London, and so my parents escaped with me um, at that time and lived in London. Uh, and um, I knew very little about my family uh, in, in many different ways. I, my, um, I have pictures of me with my grandparents, but I don't actually remember any of that. And then being in uh, England all through the war, and then when we came back to Czechoslovakia, I was eight years old, and I didn't know what grandparents were. I didn't remember anybody, and um, nobody was around. There was no family. Um, and then my father became ambassador to Yugoslavia, um, and what happened is he had to leave again because the communists took over uh, Czechoslovakia. So that's twice the story. But I later found out, and I think there are a number of people here who know about this, I didn't know, I was raised a Catholic, married an Episcopalian, and found out I was Jewish. Uh, and so I have interfaith dialogues by myself. Welcome home, uh, by the way. Know, yeah. uh, but what I found out also, um, and my brother and sister are here, because at the time I had just been made Secretary of State when I found all this out, and I couldn't leave my job, and so they went to um, the Czech Republic and found an awful lot of things out about my family. And it does turn out, after a lot of research, that 26 members of our family were murdered in the Holocaust. And so, facing fascism directly, um, and, but I, I learned all that later. And so, basically, I think that it is a story where a country was sold down the river and Hitler always needed a scapegoat. And that is the kind of thing that we're looking at. You know, what is it that's happening? What kind of forces are there that makes this kind of thing happen? So before we come back to the American part of this story, let's talk about, much of your book is, uh, is a tour of countries, many of which you know very well, um, in which democracy is either on its back foot or has been completely uh, obliterated. Uh, and the question is, and this is where you know I want to be very careful, um, do you see uh, an analogous situation between the conditions in the world, I'm not just talking about here or in certain countries of Europe, but across the world, um, conditions analogous to the conditions that you studied of the 30s? Well, I, the, I particularly, this, a lot of this book is history. And it really goes back to looking at Mussolini and Hitler, but then spends time looking at what is going on now in Hungary, Poland, Turkey, Philippines, um, and in Venezuela and several other countries as we kind of go around. And what one does see are some similarities, and that is um, a unhappiness among people over something to do with their economic condition, or the fact that they, um, there's a minority in their country that they feel is 
in fact, undermining the system, but mostly it is just kind of trying to figure out how to run countries that are going through a lot of changes. That was true with Mussolini and what was happening in Italy. The part that truly blows my mind is that most of the countries that I've been studying, uh, the people were either elected or their, uh, their power was transferred constitutionally. And that the, the leaders that emerge take advantage of that kind of pressure from below. That's the part about fascism that's so interesting and, and so dangerous, is that it does come bottom up because there are people who feel that they've been discriminated against and technology has made them lose their jobs or something like that. And then there is a leader from above who takes advantage of that disquiet and makes it worse by, in fact, exacerbating the divisions in society and then says, I've got a solution for it. And we do see that in the countries that I've been looking at. So the obvious question for you is, is, is this. Secretary of State, in a period in which America and the democratic idea were, were, were clearly ascendant. I mean, we don't even have to go into Fukuyama and the end of history and, and, and to understand that um, the Soviet Union uh, had collapsed on itself. Um, there felt like there was a democratic wave. I, I'll ask you this in the context of a question that we often asked President Obama. President Obama had a fundamentally optimistic view of, of the nature of history, that, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice, to quote from King. Um, has your thinking over the past couple of years shifted about inevitability of democracy? Well, um, yeah, no, but I do think it, it shows, has shown me how difficult democracy is. And to go back a little bit in what you said, I do think that um, the story of my life was basically that Americans weren't there during Munich and terrible things happened. Then, during the war, when the Yanks showed up, I was a little girl, and it was amazing, and that's when I fell in love with Americans in uniform. Then what happened was that um, the, the, the war ended, and Europe was divided as a result of agreements made between the Soviet Union and the United States, and the part of the world and east of it uh, was behind the Iron Curtain. And so, uh, for me, it was the question of what is America's role? When America is not present, terrible things happen. And when we somehow help, then better things happen. I could go through all that. So what I am, so when the wall came down, and it was so interesting, Jeff, because I was able to do surveys all over Europe at the time, and uh, focus groups and attitude surveys, and people were literally euphoric about what had happened. And they just wanted to be Europeans. And it was, I had a great time because I was vice chair of the National Democratic Institute. I went to Prague with John McCain because he was head of the International Republican Institute. And there was this sense America could help in providing kind of the nuts and bolts of democracy. And they all seemed really ready to do it. I think now we keep, I've just had a discussion with some of my Czech friends. How did this happen? And I think some of it happened was because there were divisions in society. And a lot of people were really desirous of being free and being able to think and do what they wanted to. But the bottom line is a lot of people were not gaining from what was going on. There was a lot of corruption going on. And so they, in many ways, wanted to go back to a safety net. And then they were, in fact, kind of promoted by people like uh, uh, Viktor Orban, 
who wanted to seize power for himself. But I think the issues are similar in terms of problems that were there, in terms of divisions caused by economic necessity um, and by certain aspects of the democratic systems being still too new and slow to deal with the problems. I want to come to America's role in the world, and we can talk about that in the context of uh, a particular dictator, Bashar al-Assad, and some of the events of the past week. But let me stay on this for one minute and, and come back to your optimism, your seemingly innate optimism. Um, I think a lot of people, maybe even in this room, um, believed five or ten years ago that history was an arrow flying forward. Um, the, the conditions you're describing in country after country um, resemble more conditions in the 1930s in Italy and Germany than they resemble the United States or Western Europe in the 90s. So I just want to press you on your optimism a little bit. I mean, are we in an endless cycle where we move democratic and then move anti-democratic? What is the role of technology in uh, accelerating a democratic decline? Well, I just say, I went to college, to Wellesley, sometime between the invention of the iPad and the discovery of fire. But uh, <laughs> the bottom line is that uh, because one of the professors had done a trans uh, made a play out of Candide, we all had the motto, everything is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. And there really was this kind of sense that things were going to get better. That is how I grew up. I am an optimist who worries a lot. Um, and I am worried about the fact, exactly what you're saying, is that there are conditions out there that, in fact, provide the, the petri dish for something terrible to happen, where, in fact, some of the definitions that I gave of fascism uh, would take hold. And that's why I worry a lot that... And, by the way, there's this saying that we all know now, see something, say something, I've added to it, do something. And that's what I'm trying to do by writing the book. Well, let's go, let's go right at it. The conditions that you've studied across Europe, Asia, elsewhere, uh, places from the Hungary to the Philippines, do you see those conditions right now in America? The uh, preconditions for fascism. I, I do see some of the divisions that I think were um, evident in terms of a lot of people feeling that they have been uh, disenfranchised or have lost their jobs as a result of technology, that they haven't had the opportunity of an education that would teach them the new skills. And there is kind of this sense that is true in all the countries that we've been talking about, they need somebody to blame. Um, and so that was certainly true in Europe. There's always the scapegoat. Um, and I think the thing that's happening here, there are people that have been left out. Um, and so the idea is to blame the foreigners, uh, the immigrants. And so, and we're operating on the fear factor, which is another aspect of it, which is engendered by um, this kind of sense that worse things are going to happen instead of having an optimistic view of things. But I do see some conditions. And by the way, I was planning to write this book no matter who'd gotten elected, because I really do think that there's certain aspects, not so some of the 30s, uh, where, and the 30s were difficult, obviously, but the interesting part, and FDR was attacked from the right and the left, but he was able to develop some kind of common ideas, centrist. And what I don't see now is this search for common ground. It is more like, um, you know, real divisions on the right and the left and the exacerbation uh, of the differences. 
You do something very clever in this book, repeatedly, um, in your history of the rise of Mussolini and Hitler. Every so often, you'll drop in a little bit of an Easter egg. Um, you'll, you'll tell the reader, for instance, that Mussolini's motto, one of his mottos, was drain the swamp. Um, in Italian. In, it, yeah, it sounds yeah, better in yeah. Italian. The, um, but there, there's a kind of indirection to what you do in there. It's not that indirect, but it's, 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 no, somewhat, no, no, no. it's somewhat indirect. But let's, go, let's just go at the question. Is the, president, the current president of the United States a fascist, or is he someone with fascistic tendencies? He is not a fascist. I'm not calling him a fascist. I do think he's the least democratic president of modern history. What's the difference between a least democratic president and a president with fascistic tendencies? Well, I think that I'm, I'm trying to be really careful about it because there are certain of these tendencies that are out there, but a lot of it is based on the fact that his instincts are not democratic in terms of uh, what he's been saying about people like you, the press, um, and then also how he treats the judiciary, um, that he does, in fact, try to divide uh, us versus them, um, and I think that there are various parts of it. But I, I don't, don't think that he is a fascist. I think that um, he is, however, got tendencies that make me very nervous, and so I prefer to call it undemocratic. Uh, okay, so let's treat you, we're all going to treat you as a canary in the coal mine or a bellwether. What would he have to do for you to say, you know what, this guy's a fascist? Well, I, I mean, how far away are we? I mean, no, you must have, no, to borrow I, I an expression, a red line. Some of it is, um, I think, the willingness, how much violence is involved in it. The willingness to do anything to stay um, in power and really um, much more, uh, I don't want to give any advice here. Uh, no, uh, I think that basically that's the part that, uh, and then kind of subjugating all the um, all the various institutions that have to do with democracy and undermining them. But mostly it's this kind of sense that not, in, not allowing any part of the institutional democratic issues to work, um, and then a certain level of kind of a bully with an army. And I think that's the part that I'm worried about. Can you be, and I'm, I'm not asking this with snark, but can you be um, a fascist, um, if you are incompetent at working the levers of government and power? <laughs> that may should, be, I do the, should I do the snarky no, version? No, I mean, that may be very hopeful. Well, go talk, talk about this. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that um, there is a question about that. I think the decision-making process doesn't seem to work. And so, but... I, I am trying really here um, not to be um, crazy, uh, you know, alarmist, though what I am doing is, this is, book is titled the way I wanted it to be, A Warning. And I think that that is where we need to figure out what we can do. I kind of have my to-do list, um, which is that there needs to be an awful lot more public participation. I think we cannot allow um, the way that the press is being treated, and I have made a big point of that. We can't allow the things that are happening to the judicial branch. We cannot allow um, this kind of sense that uh, we, we can 
find people that, we can't operate on the basis of fear all the time. But the thing that we all have to do, those of us who care, actually have to do positive things, which is to run for office, uh, to support those who are, and not to care just about the federal government, but also um, mayors and local councils and, and state, and uh, really push on. And then the other part, I have to say, we have to learn to listen to people we disagree with. Now, um, I would uh, like to warn you all that as I drive um, to work every morning, I do listen to right-wing radio, uh, and I yell and um, <laughs> give people the finger. And so... Um, you I know what you should do? You should call in. That I would know, be surprising. Well, that would freak them out. Uh, but I do think one has to listen um, and also try to, to listen to people you disagree with. I think that part is very important. And then I have been so moved by literally the children who marched and who um, um, want gun sanity so that they don't have to wear flak jackets to school. And so I think more activism is what we need to do. Um, and, I, and that is, we, we have to guard against this happening. And then the other part is we cannot have scapegoats. That is one of the aspects. The Hungarian, uh, Viktor Orban doesn't like immigrants. Uh, the Poles don't either. Um, and just generally, we, we can't blame others for issues that have something to do with the fact that the social contract in many ways is broken down and people are left out. I want to come back to the question that you've cleverly alighted uh, so far, um, which is the red line, the red line issue. Well, let, me, let me make it easier. If the president fires Mueller or Rosenstein, would that cause you to think, you know what? This guy has, I don't want to use the word fascist, but that he has actual fascistic tendencies. Well, one of the things that I haven't really mentioned um, specifically on purpose, which is that one of the, the uh, uh, real uh, uh, signs, symptoms, is contempt for thinking that you're above the law. Um, and I think that is something that, if that happens, that that is something very much to worry about. But the bottom line is, if he does that, I think in many ways that will make people realize that he's gone too far. Um, but, I do, I, but I do think that that then energizes people and should energize all of us to actually be much more forthright in pushing people to run. And there are elections coming up. And one of the things that I think is really important, and by the way, you know, in my role as chairman of the National Democratic Institute, I go to countries to observe elections, and people stand in lines in the rain and the heat for the privilege of voting. And we are doing something that is unacceptable, is normalizing what is going on now. Um, and not thinking that we have any power, and our power is through voting and running for office. The, um, there's an interesting aspect to the phenomenon of Trump that I don't think we talk about enough, which is that this wouldn't be possible without the acquiescence and support of the structures of one of the two major political parties. Um, you are a well-known centrist. Centrist suggests that you had an easy time, or as a, at least a goal, of working with moderates from the other side. Um, and so, my question: Obviously, you had a close have a close relationship with John McCain and others. 
my question for you is, is this, and this I'm asking you is almost to analyze. Um, what do you think happened in the Republican Party um, that weakened the immune system to the point where um, this person became the flag bearer for a major American political party? I think nobody believed that this could happen. I think any of us that watched when there were all those Republican candidates up there that they would let this happen. And I think that what is going on, which I find very troubling, is the fact that there is not a pushback by what I call decent Republicans. Senator McCain is certainly doing everything he can, and a few others are, but that they are seeing their party, uh, the party of Abraham Lincoln, really destroyed. And some of it is because they're afraid about their own election prospects. But what is fascinating are the number of, of members that are decided not to run which is interesting, but not particularly helpful. Uh, what needs to happen is somebody um, has to run in their place and not, in fact, some far-right Freedom Party person. But I, I do think, you know, I do believe in bipartisanship. I had to in order to work with Jesse Helms. But the bottom line is we actually managed to do some things together. And I do believe that that's important. And frankly, you know what's so interesting? There's really been a problem with the State Department budget and support for democracy. And I've spent a lot of time on the Hill, and there are Republicans that want to help. And I have said also, Constitution Article 1 is about the power of Congress. It's Article 1 time, and they have to stand up and do something. Have you ever met Donald Trump? Pardon? Have you ever met Donald Trump? No. Would you like to meet no. Donald Trump? I really would not. Um, I could, Why? Because I, I have nothing to say to him. Did you think that he has the capacity to learn? Do you think that he's no. the capacity to understand? I do not, frankly. And that's the sad part, because I have worked for a lot of political people, uh, starting with Ed Muskie and a lot of different people, and they all had the capacity to learn and to understand that um, there are things that are a little bit different than they thought, and listen to others. Um, and, and I think, and I don't get that feeling at all about Trump. You write about a, a, a large range, and I want to come to the North Korean and the Syrian situation, but you write about a long, a, a large range of, of foreign despots you've met uh, over the years, um, foreign leaders you've met. I'm curious if you can, it, it, we all do this in our minds, we compare people to people we've met. Um, who, who in the panoply of leaders you've met um, does Donald Trump remind you of? But that is nobody particularly. I, I mean, not, no. not a Viktor no, Orban, very, not a not a populist no, uh, European no. populist. What I find very interesting, actually, Viktor Orban was a very interesting character that I met in 1986. He you met was, him when he was a good guy. When he was a good guy. By the way, George Soros funded his education at Oxford, um, and he also was really. Uh, he found, uh, Orban started a party of youth, Fidesz. As he got older, it got to be an old party. But the bottom line is he was an interesting guy that was trying to sort out what to do in Hungary after all that time in communism. The question is what happened to him? And, but he's very smart and um, educated in a number of different ways and I think not kind of off the top of his head um, something fluky that happens, and I truly can't think of anybody of these particular leaders 
that is um, as uh, undisciplined um, as, as Trump. I think that is his, his major issue. By the way, today was, uh, Alyssa was very kind to introduce me about all these firsts. So I was the first woman um, Secretary of State, and I was the first Secretary of State to go and visit Kim Jong-il in North Korea. Today I had another first. Um, I was uh, with Jake Tapper on CNN, and we were talking about sanctions against Russia and various things, and all of a sudden he said, thank you very much. And he, they do breaking news, and it's the first time that I have been interrupted by a porn star. Muzzle tough. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rare achievement. The, um, you've introduced a new subject, which is the way... <laughs> I'd feel less abashed if we weren't sitting immediately in front of the Torah, by the way. <laughs> I was thinking whether that was appropriate in the setting. No, but, but everything that's going on is not necessarily yeah. appropriate. We have to still talk about it. Talk about America's role in the world right now. Um, you know, you, you have, you've had problems with Barack Obama's foreign policy, you had problems with George W. Bush's foreign policy, you had problems with foreign policies across the, the spectrum. Uh, we all sense that something is different right now. It, talk about this in the frame of American indispensability. Uh, have we ceased to be, or are we ceasing to be, the indispensable nation that you've talked yeah. about? Well, let me just say, my whole life, as I've said, has been based on America being present and doing something. And um, when I went to the United Nations in 93, um, and President Clinton had a different view of what we needed to do, but the thing that was happening, a lot of um, things that had to be done domestically, because he felt that not enough had been done by the previous administration, so it was the economy stupid. And there was really a question about what our role was going to be internationally. And he's the one that first used the term indispensable. I just used it so often, it became identified with me. But there's nothing about the word indispensable that says alone. It means that we need to be engaged. And we need to be engaged because it's good for America. Um, and so what happened, um, by the way, Americans don't like the word multilateralism. It has too many syllables and it ends in an ism. Uh, but it only means partnership. And so what we saw during the Clinton administration was American engagement with others in order to try to deal with the kinds of issues that had plagued the world during World War II. Deliberately, um, one could say, um, I certainly wouldn't anymore, that we didn't know what was happening during World War II. But all of a sudden, we knew everything that was happening in the Balkans, for instance, and how to figure out, in partnership with others, to do something about it. And that's now the question. What is America's role in the world? And the hardest part, Jeff, is the following, is that it used to be that American presidents and American secretaries of state would go to a country, even where we disagreed with the leader, and talked about human rights and democracy, um, and made our points clear. And now we don't do that. And therefore, some of these people feel um, that they have the liberty to go ahead and undermine democracy. Does the fact that so many Americans apparently uh, 
apparently have ceased to believe in indispensability as a project or, or America's presence in the world as a, a positive, ameliorative uh, aspect of global affairs. Does that reflect poorly on the establishment, the foreign policy establishment here in Washington, the, the establishments of the two parties? Well, I think that there's a reason for different things, and part of, partially, I do think the war in Iraq was one of the biggest mistakes the United States had made. And President Obama was elected to get us out of that. Um, and I think there is kind of a sense of why are we involved in a variety of places. And I talk about something called the Karzai effect. President Karzai of Afghanistan not only did not thank us or be grateful for the fact that people died um, and that we spent a lot of money there, he actually said it was all our fault that things were screwed up. So why would we want to help places um, that Americans are the most generous people in the world with the shortest attention span and also want to have somebody say thank you. And so I can understand what has happened here and that we have to worry about ourselves because the infrastructure doesn't work. But what you need is a president that can explain the relationship between our position in the world and our health at home. But I think you're saying that some of Trump's instincts might actually be correct, or at least rooted in some kind of reality, a reality that Americans feel uh, that they're not thanked for all of the sacrifices that Americans have made. Is that fair? I, I do. I mean, I think he has, that's why I said some of it is bottom-up, that then there's a leader who can take advantage of it, and what you need to do is have people that can explain why we need to, we don't have to be everywhere, and we don't have to do everything alone, but I think the world can't function without American leadership. And the thing that drives me crazy is Trump making us seem like victims. You know, America has just been taken advantage of all the time. Um, all these foreigners are coming. Um, dreadful things are happening. The scapegoat part. And not that leadership that understands that America does need to be engaged. Um, the, uh, let's talk about the events, the very dramatic events of, of the weekend. Um, and I don't mean Michael Cohen, I mean the, something that's much more important, um, which is the destruction of Syria. You are, you'll probably not cotton to this word necessarily, but you are known as a bit of an interventionist, Bosnia forward. Um, you disagreed with President Obama's decision not to bomb the Syrian chemical munitions factories and, and sites when that was an issue in, in that administration. Um, your, do you have words of praise for Donald Trump for enforcing a red line established by President Obama? Um, I am very, I think it was right to respond, but the bottom line is there's no strategy. We have no idea where this is going, and kind of one-offs are not a good idea. Um, and I think that the complete disarray of the decision-making process has been shown over this weekend. Um, where, according to what I've read, um, they couldn't make up their mind um, in terms of what option to take and a number of different things. John Bolton was there for three days um, and various problems to do with that. Then trying to figure out what to do about Russia. What happened today on Russia and the sanctions is one of the most ridiculous things I have ever seen where the president has undermined his United Nations ambassador who has really been doing a very kind of stalwart job in talking about what Russia... She's an old-fashioned McCain-style Republican from your perspective. Is that fair to say? Nikki Haley? 
I, I, I'm not sure I can categorize her, but I really do think, I didn't like some of the things she said when she first went to the UN and said we're taking names about who's on our side or not, but I have been in those councils where the Russians are pushing us around, um, and I think she's been very strong about what needs to be done and about the sanctions, and all of a sudden she says they're going to be sanctioned, then all of a sudden the president says, I don't think so. I mean, aside from making her look bad, um, and undercutting the highest level at the moment um, person in diplomacy. She's a cabinet member and an ambassador. And so, um, and then also, one of the problems is that the signals that Trump gives generally abroad, I, I travel abroad, and many of us do, but as a former diplomat, you're not supposed to criticize your own country. It's impossible to explain what Trump is doing um, and trying to explain to. Uh, allies and adversaries. Maybe this is just the crazy Nixon approach. No, it's too I mean, you can be crazy a little bit, uh, the crazy Nixon approach, but not permanently crazy. And I think that it truly undermines what is going on. And we need allies and friends. But if you're constantly mixing signals, um, you're in trouble. And then if for some reason he is really uh, gives Putin a very wide berth, um, and he's kind of apologetic for how many diplomats were kicked out, and now he changes his mind on something, it does give kind of sustenance to the idea that the Russians do have something on him. Let me ask you this one final question. I mean, I have a, there's a million questions, and I hope some people will get to them. Uh, you have a really good finger feel, a good sense of people with non-democratic values, non-democratic tendencies, um, and you have a very good, after years of diplomacy, you have a very good sense of motivation. Um, can you explain or tell us what you think is going on in the relationship between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump? I don't uh, no. Uh, uh, I mean, I... Let me rephrase it in a way no, that brings me, us to yes. Let me say the following thing. I met Putin the first time when he was still acting president. Um, at an APEC summit where he was trying to be very ingratiating with everybody. Then we had the summit in Moscow, and what was very clear to me was that he was very smart um, and tough in so many different ways. He is a KGB agent. That is what we have to remember, and he has played a weak hand very well. I think that... Um, I cannot understand what it is that Trump sees in him, which makes me think that there are some other things going on in terms of what is being investigated. And the fact that Trump is not capable of looking into what the Russians did during the elections here and what they clearly have done in Europe because he's concerned about the legitimacy of his election is definitely thinking that he's above the law. And that's what worries me because, and that's why we have to be very vigilant about the elections, the midterm elections, and then the presidential elections, because Putin is capable, he has um, um, really militarized information and is using asymmetrical warfare now. And I think somebody needs to make clearer to Trump what is going on and that this does not have to do with his legitimacy. This has to do with undermining democracy, which is why I've said the things I did about not having democratic instincts. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you all for listening to The Atlantic Interview. This episode was produced by Kevin Townsend with production support from Matt Thompson, Kim Lau, and Catherine Wells. If you like the show, give us a rating. And by that, I mean a positive rating. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.